Hey everybody, I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Appreciate it. Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. We're bringing the best and the brightest in the world of business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career forward. Folks, my guest today, a friend of the show for a couple of years, someone who's supported me for a long time, been a big fan. I've been on their show for a bit. Al Cini, who is the managing partner and the creative force behind Brand and Culture Alignment Toolkit, AI. Builds high-performing teams, is educated in quantitative social psych, and has decades of large-scale project management experience for real-world companies, like a little company called Apple, Merck, and NBC Universal. And his latest development, Profit, which I'll link up later, Team Building, Blending and Bonding Workshop, and we'll be getting to some of his practical and tactical tips and advice that you could use to bring out the best in your team. So let's get to it. Al, welcome to the podcast. Adam, thanks so much for having me. Awesome. It's been it's been a long time in the making. I'm thrilled to have you on this side. Welcome to my house um, over here and thrilled to have you. Uh, I'm excited about it. I know you ask tough questions and I'm prepared with uh, with empty headed answers. So go right ahead. I don't know how tough we're going to get today. We'll see about that. And I apologize. I don't have the full TV set. I don't have the cameras and the producers here. Just little old me in the podcast studio. So hopefully that'll that'll suffice. You're doing just fine. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Good stuff. So I usually end my show every episode, 230 plus episodes talking about the North Star, but we share that common terminology along with, with many folks who really understand what that is. Um, could you explain from a, from, a, from a business perspective why it's important for a business and an organization to have a North Star? Uh, you know, that's that's actually a great place to start exactly this. Uh, we're, we're hearing an awful lot these days about people not being engaged in their work. And Gallup just published another dismal mm-hmm survey result that, that tells us that uh, still only 30% of the workers uh, in this country are engaged in the work they do. The number of uh, the percentage of workers that are actively disengaged, which means downright pissed off about the work they do, has jumped to almost 20%. And that's the highest it's been in 15 years. So the, the purpose of a North Star in any organization is to give people something to fall in love with. Uh, there's a saying, I mean, an awful lot of people think that the problem is a leadership problem, and there's an element of truth in that. But no leader has ever been the North Star. No leader has ever been the purpose of a company. No. They've been a guide to get to the purpose of the company. Right. So, They're not demigods. Yeah. So, you know, what we know, what we know is that people really don't follow people. They follow what people follow. So, Adam, when you love what you do, other people fall in love with what you do because they see how much you love it. And that, and what you love about your work is what becomes a North Star. And all of a sudden, then all the Gallup numbers change around that. Yeah, but what, what, what drives that? It's interesting, too. I mean, and, and first, we're talking in, in generalities. And we're not saying everybody needs to love what you do for a living. But you have to have some kind of passion and draw to it. And listen, 
in not everybody's financial case where they are in life in, in, in socioeconomic ladder of this world does that fall into it. But generally speaking, you have to find the purpose. And if you're not following your purpose, what's the point? That's the end, finding the purpose. I mean, you know, we got Simon Sinek out there who says you've got to find your why. But we don't have uh, we don't have how to find your why. I mean, if, usually the answer to how do you find your why is to hire the guy who said you have to find your why. And yeah. <laughs> uh, that's not a good enough answer. There needs to be a process for that. And uh, we found one. Yeah. And you said something earlier in, in, in your in your last answer, uh, quote, people don't follow people. They follow what people follow. Let's let's break that down a little bit. What, what, what does that mean? It, it, it means, Adam, that if you if you're pursuing something. And okay, we'll soften the word love, although I still actually kind of like that word. We'll soften the word love. If you're committed to something and I see that you're committed to it and uh, that commitment comes through to me, I'll pick up the tools and pick up the paintbrush and pick up the paint and I'll start doing it too. And if, if, if you do that right, at some point you could step away and I'll keep doing it. I don't need you anymore. Because I've fallen in love with what you love. And once I've done that, then you can get behind me and lead me from behind. You like can't that. lead somebody from behind. There's got to be something ahead of them that's drawing them. And no, that, if, you're leading from, if you're leading from behind, you're pushing them. <laughs> it's not yeah, right. Well, yeah. You know, I mean, every, every company that's ever bragged about how wonderful they are has had that drawing thing, that thing in front of the, of, in front of the company that pulled people in, that uh, made them part of something they felt was bigger than themselves. And listen, I've got a guy who comes to my house. I live, we talked a little bit before the program. Uh, I live in suburbia myself. I have a septic system. And there's a guy who comes to my house once or twice a year and he sucks out my septic tank. That's mm-hmm. what he does. Now, I know we say you don't have to love your work, but I got to tell you, this guy's been doing this now for 25 years. When he comes, he always brings the right stuff, always mm-hmm. looks like he's excited about it, mm-hmm. always says hi to me, remembers my name, gets right to it, takes care of it very quickly. If he turns up anything that's wrong, he fixes it right away. Uh, I, there are plenty of people out there that are probably less, uh, would probably charge me less money to do this than he would, but I, I don't want him. I want him. And uh, that, to me anyway, that's his, that's his North Star. Whatever it is it. that gets him excited about it, gets me excited about it. And, and he believes in his passion. So let's hit, let's hit the rewind button. It's something I like to do on this show. I, I, I truly Good. believe that there's so much to be learned from the earlier life experiences, and, and you have plenty of, of wisdom and experience. And I know you studied various types of psychology in your undergrad and postgrad, and I believe you left postgrad work uh, to, to go into IT early on, and I won't date you, but let's just say these were relatively <laughs> the early days of IT. What was what was that opportunity that made you leave grad school and move into this? Well, that was, uh, I mean, if we go back to my grad school experience was Vanderbilt, and uh, I was a social psych major, and it was, um, and I was in a doctoral program, and I and I was doing pretty well at it. Uh, but I think the reason why I left was because uh, more than anything, I just didn't love it enough, and. Uh, I had learned an awful lot from it, but while I was working as a grad student, I got into the whole idea of uh, quantitative analysis, which is kind of my thing. And um, I fell in love more with the tools and with what the tools were used for. So I was the guy who installed the computer into the psych lab, uh, in the Mm -hmm. psych lab. I was the guy that configured it. I was the guy who wrote the programs to do the analyses. When that was all over, the company that sold the computer to Vanderbilt called me and said, how would you like to leave graduate school and come work for us. I moved from Nashville to Hartford, and that's why I left graduate school. I kind of like computers and technology. And and it's interesting, too. I mean, we we go deep on the research here. And I I heard you talking about a time in your life where you were a 23-year-old programmer working in Hartford. And I think you said you you may have been ADHD prone back then and a little all over the place and, and spontaneous. 
let's let's kind of let's kind of unpack that a little bit um <laughs> because it, it's interesting too i mean when i was a kid i mean listen i'm 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 no spring chicken either but like these weren't things i mean i'm 43 years old these, these weren't things that were talked about about kids kids in that age it was just like oh he's a little antsy or he's a little bit unfocused or she's a little bit all over the place but do you think that your inability to sit still back in those days made you aware or more sensitive how folks feel in an organization uh, you know i i love the way you do this i really do and 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 so since we've kind of dove together into this uh, yeah. uh, semi-miserable memory that i have about <laughs> how i was when i was 22 there were two things i remember about myself when i was 22 a couple of things on the positive side a little darker was, hair a little more hair <laughs> Yeah, yeah, a lot, a lot more, <laughs> <laughs> and it was all over the place. Did you have like long, crazy hair? Like, what was I did? I did. Yeah, yeah. When I came out of graduate school, I was kind of a hippie, I, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I was a counterculture kind of a guy. So, uh, so here I am. I'm 22 years old. I kind of remember. Yeah, I do have a short attention span. Yeah, I do like to flit from one thing to another thing. I also remember at 22, I was pretty sure I knew everything. I mean, I was really it. felt like I was at the top of my game. I really felt like I was something special. I mean, young, it's kind of a young person's bias. And I had that in spades. Uh, but I also had these faults. I mean, these failings. I'm, uh, the, the charming aspect of having ADHD wears thin. And eventually, when it comes down to actually focusing on getting things done, it, makes, it, it does make your life more complicated. So the funny thing about going back there and, and, and actually discussing that is that the first experience I had with the North Star was exactly then because they, the computer company that we were working with at the time sent a guy in. And this guy was the opposite of me. He was mm. uh, dressed in a suit. He was very level-headed. He was very uh, mature, very focused, took great notes, wrote everything he heard anybody say. And when he was finished – he sent back a letter to everybody recording everything he heard and, and what he was going to do next about what we said. And he became a kind of a role model for me. And, and I adapted mm -hmm. uh, some of his traits and calmed myself down. And uh, I began the process of calming myself down and getting ready for what I do now. Do you think that gentleman at that time in your life kind of pushed you in the direction from programmer to project management in your career? Yeah. The, the yeah, meticulousness, like, the order of it? Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that you know, that's that's a great question. Uh, he he kind of okay. So, I, so you're right. I'm, my evolution was kind of like uh, from this quant crazy kid programmer software guy to this more mature, more level headed. Over a period of time, it did not happen overnight. But over a period of time, I became a little bit more focused. So, I mean, I kept a lot of what I still of what I had at 22, and I still have a lot of that. But I do know now that at some point you've got to slow things down to give people a chance to catch up. And that's probably the big learning there. I was always three or four steps ahead of everybody. And that was a fault. That wasn't a strength. And uh, I really needed to allow that. I, I needed to allow other people to catch up with me. He taught me that. That was an important thing. Great, great um, perspective. But he also taught me how to – he didn't just teach me how to manage a project. It's, you know, it's funny you're taking me down this road. What I learned That's about really managing good, projects, it's a good one. It's a great way to go. Um, what I learned about project, manage from, uh, project management from him was not that it's about managing the dates and the expectations, which is what most project managers do. It's about something deeper. It's about uh, commitment to actually completing the project. But you don't get a project done because you blame and shame people into it. You get a project done because you align and inspire people right. to do it. Well and, uh, and he was really good at that. And those are some of the traits that I picked up from him. 
Hey, everybody. First, I'd like to thank you all for spending time with me and my guest on the podcast. This show is my canvas to showcase amazing people from the world of recruiting, entrepreneurship, and leadership, and unpack their career journeys for everyone to learn from. But this show is also a business generator for me, as well as creating thought leadership and endless amazing content. And I've taken what I've learned in the past three years and over 200 recorded and 100 live shows and distilled it down into a digital playbook that I call the Pause Course. Now you could learn how I build, manage, and produce the podcast and use it to drive real business development and relationships. Today, I'm sharing all of my secrets behind the podcast, and you can get it all at thepausecourse.com. This course is for anyone, whether you're starting out or an advanced podcaster, you're using it for B2B, a B2C. It's filled with all of my insights, learnings, tips, tricks, and templates. So get it now at thepausecourse.com and learn all my secrets. Thanks. I want to talk for a moment about your, 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 we are going back, like this is your life kind of style here. I want to talk about your time at NBC, um, where, correct me if I'm wrong here, you had a formula for sourcing pilots that pilot episodes that led to a 10 X decrease in budget to find those hitches. I'd love if you could kind of share with us that, that secret sauce. Yeah, and are they still yeah, using you know, it? Are they still using the ideas? The, I mean, is this the well, Alcini method? It. Did you it, find it, friends? Well, Did you help find it, friends? I, 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 well, let's 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 talk. Let's talk about that. Now, remember, I, uh, uh, this conversation has started with uh, what my high school, or what my college experience was, graduate school experience was. Then I told you about a role model that I met who mm-hmm. changed me when I was twenty-two. Now, here's what we learned working at NBC, and I mean, this is fast-forwarding several years. So, while I was at NBC, because of my psych background and because I had a statistical analysis background, they one of the many rotations they put me on. I wasn't an employee, by the way; I was a contractor. Uh, and I was there for 15 years, which is unheard of because GE, as soon as you, as soon as your rate floats above a certain number, mm-hmm. GE does not stand for generous. Their first instinct is to <laughs> execute you, to delete you from the Excel spreadsheet. So they kept me around for a long time, which is a really remarkable. And, and here's the reason why I think more than anything, I understanding people at a really, really deep level is key to producing quality television. It's also key to producing, uh, to, to, to completing a project. It's key to building anything. In order to get anything done, you need to understand and take into account the people that will be doing it with you and for you and around you. You can't just take yourself into account. You got to think about them too. Exactly. So here's the formula for must see TV. Thinking about the people. Remember, this is the ultimate challenge of motivation. How do I get 35 or 40 million people between the ages of 18 and 45 to tune into a particular television program on a Thursday night at nine o'clock? How do I do that? How do I motivate? Tell us, Al, how do we do that? All right. In order order for a program to be successful on television, you need to meet as a viewer four characters before the second commercial break. You need to meet four characters. Now, let me use Seinfeld as kind of an example because that was a, like a classic must-see. Four core characters there. There are four characters in the show, uh, which is also important because each one of those characters draws a salary, and that's a cost element. So, you, uh, uh, which means there are too many friends on Friends, but that's a whole separate conversation. Well, I mean, more, more I remember those salary negotiations. Those are the first million-dollar episodes. Yeah. Yeah. They were they were brutal shows, but 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 Seinfeld. Let's go back to Seinfeld. The fun experience for everybody. Before the second commercial break, in order for you to fall in love with the television program, you got to meet four people. The first person is somebody who is kind of edgy and twitchy and detail-oriented and talks a lot, and that's George. 
Okay, that's uh, uh, he's an expert in everything. He's George Vandalay. He's an architect. He's a marine biologist. He's he's a genius. He's an expert. So you got to meet Davis. somebody yeah. who's yeah, got to meet somebody who's an expert. And then after that, you've got to meet somebody or around that time, you've got to meet somebody who reigns that expert in, focuses them into a, a result, decides where we're going to eat tonight, what movie we're going to go see. Mary. That's Elaine. Elaine, fine. Elaine, Elaine is the is the driver. Voice of reason. She's the person yes. who says this is where we're going to go, this is how we're going to get there. She took she took care of all that stuff. Then you got to meet the third character, and the third character is a, a, a character we call a caretaker. It's somebody who is there all the time. All the other characters bounce off of him or her, uh, and uh, they're a steady performer. You can count on them and rely on them, and that's Jerry. Jerry was always kind of a straight man on his own show. He had a lot which of funny is, lines. But which is funny, actually. That's very true. Jerry was very much a straight man on that show. He was a straight man on that program, and even though it was his program. Yeah, I mean, and he's a funny guy. I mean, everybody was funny. Everybody had a, some, some a Kramer in them. Right. But Kramer was pure Kramer, the fourth character. The fourth character is unpredictable. You never know what they're going to say next. You never know where it's going to go. That's your fourth character. So you need uh, a person who's detail-oriented and focused and kind of a genius. You need somebody who pushes a result. You need somebody who is funny and unpredictable. And you need somebody who's steady. And if you look at every successful television program over the last 15 years, the ones that have lasted multiple seasons, you'll find all four of those characters, whether it's a police show or a comedy. I mean, how they shade them varies from one to another, but, and my part of it, my element of it was, why do these four characters work the way they do? So my part of the research was, everybody was, everybody at NBC just said, listen, shut up, Al, we don't have to spend any more money on this, we know the formula, and we're not going to tell anybody, they have me under under an NDA. Right. Um, but uh, but, uh, but what, why do you want to know why? And I said, well, because that's my style. So they gave me a little bit of money. And, um, and we, and we found out why it's not the character that's like you, that you fall in love with. It's a character that's opposite to you, that you fall mm. in love with, because that's a fundamental aspect of social dynamics. We tend to form social units based on people that add to us and maybe compensate for some of our failings. So it's, it's just interesting, the dynamics of all that. And that's, that's, that's what makes it successful. Wow. Have you, have you spoken about this on Have you broken that down before? Cause that's fantastic. I mean, that's great content well, right there, Al. It's well, it's and, terrific stuff. And, and, and you know, and, and it speaks to what I'm doing for a living now in a, in a way that I'm sure we'll get to. Yeah. And, 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 and let's dig into that too, that too. But like, so how did that experience of form would, would eventually become uh, a BCAT? That's exactly, such a great question. You're so good at this. All right. So let's say that at the core of every effort, whether, whether it's a television show or a Broadway play or a project, even a technical project, let's say that at the core of every effort, there's kind of a collective personality. Let's say that whenever you get a group of people together to do anything, including a family, there is a style of that family, a collective personality that forms in the middle of that group, right? Um well, it turns out that's true. We've done an awful lot of research on that. And and BCAT, brand and culture alignment, is the uh, synthesis of behavior, which is brand, and culture, which are motivations and attitudes. Those two things mixed together create a persona, a personality that represents an organization or a team or a television show's best self living its best day at work. You what does represent that, look that like? out to people. Yeah. It's and, and- coolest. How do you find it? How, well, how does it manifest? What does the scoring look like? What does a visual look like? It's, is it a score? Is it a is it a rating? What is it? Well, you get, well, you, it starts with a question, and uh, this is where it gets to be really interesting. And I've there are an awful lot of people, I'm sure, watching your program who've taken 
assessments like disc and MBTI before. They hate them. Okay. So, and you know, so we all know them. what a personality is. Most people hate these. They're antiquated. They're terrible. They're invasive. And, and, they, and I'll tell you why they suck. And uh, I'll tell you what's wrong with them. What's wrong with them is that the reason why we give people individual personality assessments isn't because we care about them as individuals. It's because we care about their participation on a team. I mean, I wouldn't bother to give you an MBTI or, an, or a DISC unless I wanted to improve your performance on a team of mine right. that you're a member of, right? But when you, when you give people MBTI and DISC, what you get from them is purely them. But that's not the important part of it. What, what you want is you don't want the answer to the question, who am I? You want the answer to the question, who are we? Mm-hmm. And you don't get that from DISC and MBTI, but you do get it from this. Okay, you ready for this? Bring it. You take a group of people who have anything in common, whether they're building something or supporting something or acting together in a play. You get them to think very deeply about this thing that they're doing together. Just think about this team that you're a member of or this organization that you're a part of. Now, think about that. Visualize that team, that whole team, everybody in it, everything it uses, everything it does. Think about all of it as though it were a single person. And we call this the incorporating question. Think about the whole team as though we're a single person that somebody could meet at a party. What would that person be like? So what we're asking, in a sense, is a disc kind of a question. Hmm. But instead of profiling you, I'm asking you to profile us, all of us. But what I get back from that is a picture in your head of who we all are. And what we found is that the more similar those answers are from everybody, the more alike those answers are, the more effective the team is. The less alike those answers are, the further apart those answers are, the more self-focused and rather than collaboratively focused everybody is. This is interesting. And I know there's a lot of intricate elements that go into this and there's an intricate formula that's made up of, but I'm, I'm generally just counterpoint. I'm generally, I, I like, I like the, the, I don't like culture fit for me. That's the F word. I hate the F word. I hate culture fit. That implies you want everyone to look, act, sound, and, and be like you say in mindset. And when I'm even talking what you look like on the outside of your sexual orientation or any of that kind of stuff, but how people think and act, I like, and many of my, my compadres, is culture ad. Diversity of thought, diversity of mindset, diversity of perspectives, people that are going to challenge you in a respectful manner to drive the conversation forward. You don't want a company full of yes people. You do not want that. So how does this technique avoid that? Well, that's, uh, the, 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 that's, again, a really terrific question. It, it doesn't just avoid it. It blows it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, most managers, God, God help us, we're, we're ruled by these people on a daily basis. Most managers went to the Fisher-Price School of Business, which is <laughs> uh, a block set with squares and stars and, and circles yep. in it and blocks you're trying to fit in those shapes and a hammer that you can use to get those, to get those things mm-hmm. to fit in those shapes if they don't fit right. Yep. Right? That's Fisher-Price. That's the kind of fit that you hate. That's the kind of fit that I hate. And, uh, and uh, so this is the opposite of it. That role model that I fell in love with at the top of the program, that guy when I was 22 years old who showed me a better way to be me, wasn't somebody who made me do it. He was somebody who made me want to do it. And, and that really is the linchpin key to getting a group of people to work successfully together. A team of people is not a group of people that are doing the same thing or working on the same thing. It's a group of people who want the same thing. Mm, when it's, it's, when it's a group angle. of people want the same thing, whether they're outgoing or introverts or tall or short or whatever their characteristics are, they'll subordinate their characteristics to this thing that they're doing with everybody else. And they'll make a personal contribution, often a surprising one 
much better than you'd ever get if you tried to force it. Uh, and, and that, to me, was always the magic of managing a project. How, how does the BCAT inform managers the best way, or does it not, to manage individuals? I mean, there's a lot of talk lately about how to manage an introvert, a self-hand-raised introvert um, differently than a self-hand-raised mm-hmm. extrovert. Some folks like to be, there are some folks, and I'm using micromanage as a term, it's not always a dirty word. Some folks like more information, let's just call it that. I like to know more, I like to know continuous feedback, I wanna know how I'm doing. And other folks are like, hey, leave me the heck alone unless you got something to tell me to improve upon, otherwise I'm gonna assume that I'm going down the right path. How does a BCAT um, inform a manager about how to how to manage? It, it, it does it like this. You ask everybody on the team, including the manager, and everybody has to participate at every level. I don't care whether you're the guy that founded the company 30 years ago or you're the person who answers the phones and mops the floors. As far as I'm concerned, a team is a team and everybody on it has equal mm-hmm. access to this beauty. Uh, so first of all, everybody participates. That's number one. And everybody's equally vulnerable. Nobody's right. I mean, just because you started the company doesn't mean you know where the company needs to be headed. So we start with that question. Who are we when we're doing our best work on our best day? We get mm-hmm. everybody's answers to it. We collect them all. And what we get back from that is a collective role model that represents that whole team. It could be a George. It could be an Elaine. If, if, it's a, if it's an analytical team, it'll be a George. If it's a financial analysis team or an accounting firm, it'll typically be a George. If it's a police department, you'll get an Elaine. If it's a, a marketing company, uh, especially a creative agency, you'll get a Kramer. And if it's um, a nursing unit, a hospital unit, you'll get a Jerry. And you'll get a role model that represents everybody. And then you just present that role model to everybody and say, listen, this is who we are. This is who we are when we're doing our best work on our best day. I'm not telling you to be like this person. I'm showing you this person so that you can tell me what about you you can do in order to make a contribution that's like this role model. And then everybody creates their own management plan. I don't tell you what I need from you. I ask you what you can give me. And, I, and, and by showing you what it is I'm going to use it for, you're going to give me the best you've got. Fantastic. I mean, this is, this is good stuff here, people. So let's, let's talk about the evolution. Let's talk about the newest initiative of the ProFit program, which in essence, it seems more of like a, an immersive, in some ways, intimate team building program than the typical, you know, retreat or, or paintball. Um, what made you decide to create this and tell us how it's different. Tell us what it's all about. Well, okay, so we so we have this thing called BCAT, and we've been doing it now for about 10 years, and we have clients who, who uh, with whom we've done BCAT engagements based mm-hmm. on pretty much the principles I just told you. And one of the things we learned is we can get everybody from point A to point B. We can get everybody through the entire process very quickly. It Once you know how to do something, it can move along very, very quickly. So uh, a couple of our clients have said things like, well, you know, I don't know that I'm in for the full thing that might take a couple of months. But what do you have that I can fit into a Zoom meeting at the end of the month where everybody's going to get together for a couple of hours? And what we what we found is that there's a market for people Mm -hmm. who want Zoom meetings that actually make a difference. There are so many people attending Zoom meetings these days. And the fatigue is real. People are over it. I try to I've gone back to phone calls, by the way. Let's just talk on the phone. We don't need the pressure of this. Well, you know, the funny thing is you're not really even communicating on a Zoom call anymore. I mean, it's funny. Everybody's so focused on their backgrounds. What they really need is, a, is an artificial foreground. I mean, people don't mm. show up on Zoom calls. They just put their faces in front of a camera. And that's that's it. So, so people are hungry then for a way to engage their people on a Zoom call 
that's more than just what is what is it you were supposed to do this week? How come you haven't mm-hmm. done it yet? What's the matter with you? Yeah, I mean, usually they're shame and blame calls. And uh, <laughs> so ProFit is designed to fit inside of a Zoom meeting a couple of hours. And the goal is to take everything we do with BCAT and squeeze it down to a total of three hours. Yeah, tight, tight and compact there. So let's bring it home here. But one interesting question, um, you know, we like we like to go deep on this show. And in our pre-show prep, um, my producer brought up this point. You brought up this trend of cult leadership where reliable mediocrity um, is sought out rather than excellence. What the heck does that mean? It was pretty much exactly what you said, Adam. And that is that because I mean, of the, what real. most people think, that's a great, a great point. But because of what most people understand fit to be, which is I'm looking for somebody who is the right shaped peg for this hole that I have in my mm. company. And I've got a little hammer, by the way, that I can use to tap them in in case they're not a perfect fit. Because most people think fit is that. What we're really doing is achieving mediocrity, consistent, reliable mediocrity in our organizations, and then patting ourselves on the back and calling it excellent. I mean, yeah. this you're is not, the best You're not raising practice. the bar. You're not raising the bar. You're yeah. not challenging. Not no way. Even, not, even, not even a little bit. So how does that serve the world? How does that make, how does that make the world a better place? Not, it doesn't. The answer no. is it doesn't. It doesn't change it, anything. It, so what's the risk in aiming for excellence? Well, excellence is something that certain people achieve. If, if you think about your typical bureaucrat, and I don't want to mention any particular departments. We do an awful lot of work with people in HR. <laughs> we do a lot of work with people in marketing. One of our points right. is HR and marketing are the same function. They're not two different departments. HR and marketing to me are the, it's a voice of the company, whether you're attracting people to Internal, come to you or yep. attracting customers to come to you. It should be the same voice. Right. Uh, those silos, marketing and HR, are often so focused on the individual jobs that they do that they'll settle for mediocrity and call it excellence just so that they can at the end of the day say, well, I did what you asked me to do. But excellence is something more than that. There's a level of competence above just competency that uh, companies like Apple and Google elicit in their people every day Push that we can learn by letting go to grab a hold of. Love it. Great stuff there. Um, Al, this has been uh, super enlightening, and I hope everyone takes some time to really break down and really listen to what, what Al is talking about. These are fundamentals you can take back, apply to your company. I'm going to link up um, all, all this stuff in the comments here, but let's bring it home here. Um, Al, what is, what is the single greatest piece of advice you've ever received that you take action on every single day? Uh, uh, there were three rules I was given, and the first rule has always been the, you know, the, 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 the rule that I follow. Uh, many people, especially in corporate America, believe that they're lucky to be a part of a company. What they really need to do most is learn how to realize that the company that they're a part of is lucky to have them. But we need to turn around that idea that I'm lucky that I work for this company and make it more uh, that these people are lucky to have me. And then go mm-hmm. look for reasons to prove that, ways to prove that every day. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And um, last but not least, I mean, I started the show with this. I end every show with this. Uh, when you look back, I mean, you spoke about it from a, a business perspective, but when you look back at your own life and yeah. listen, it, it, there's Everyone has tough times. Everyone has challenges. And during those tough times, you've had to reach down deep inside out and pull yourself forward and harness that inner tenacity that you have. And on the flip side of that, when you sit here now, you're grateful for the family, life, business, career, legacy that you've created and that you're going to leave behind one of these days. What is it that drives you forward? What is your compass? Alcini, what is your North Star in life? 
Boy, that's a that's a terrific question. My north star in life, I think, is just helping other people find theirs. I, but the 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 thing that I enjoy most is working with a group of people. And when we discover that reason to exist that they all really have and just haven't been looking for or never bothered to try to find, when we discover that and we bring that to life, that lights them up, and that in turn is what lights me up. Love it, great stuff, Al. Thank you for being here on the other side of the microphone. I certainly appreciate you. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. And you can learn more about Alan, all that he does as at pro-fit4, the number four, teams.com backslash workshop. And we'll link it all up. And you can also check out getbcat.com. And don't worry about writing these down now. They'll be in the show links. You can find them. Al, where else can folks find you? Where could they connect with you? Where could they learn more? Uh, I got a phone number, 212-480-3730. Uh, I'm a New Yorker. I, 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 Puts I it out there. hold that against me. I love that. And uh, <laughs> and I'm always looking for, I, I love talking to people about what it takes to make a team work. I want everyone to connect with Al. He is awesome. He's been a fantastic supporter. Al, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Adam. I appreciate the opportunity. Cool. And I hope everyone listening, you learned a thing or two. Hit that rewind button. Go back, pause, share with your teams, bring that learning back, whether it be Zoom or old school thing that we call a phone. Just take it back, learn it, and put it into action. Definitely connect with Al and find out more. I want to thank everyone for listening. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. You know where to find out more at thepodcast.com. Sharing means caring. Leave a review, a rating. It really does help. It goes a long way. Remember, take care of each other. Look out for one another and catch us next week on another great episode of the podcast. Take care, everybody. Wisdom is forever, but for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon, jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search The podcast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com. <laughs>